That is Kevin Easel there, the North American Mission Board, explaining about how our missions givings work. So the, the North American Mission Board, that's what the Annie Armstrong Easter offering is, which we'll be participating in in a couple of months here at our church. And as we give to that, it goes towards reaching our nation with the gospel. So that was a great explanation, I thought, that he certainly shared how giving to a cooperative program, which our church gives to, and then giving um, a special one to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it goes both of those goes towards reaching America for Christ. Sunday nights, we are going, I'm preaching through the entire book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, you need to turn to Luke chapter 17. Thank you, Chris, for leading worship tonight. I appreciate that. Uh, in a pink shirt, so that certainly, it takes a special man to be able to lead and stand in front of folks in a pink shirt. The question is, did you buy that shirt or did Lauren, was that a gift? So he... He bought it himself. <laughs> so there you have it. So, uh, but that is, um, I don't even think I own a pink shirt, do I, Sherry? A pink tie. So I, I wear it on Easter. That's why I'm wearing a, for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, I wear my pink tie. So that's what I wear for, the, for that. We're going, through the, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and I, I want you to make sure you have a bulletin insert as well. You need to pull that out or go back to our Welcome Center and grab one. Because when we get, there's four sections we're going to be looking at tonight. It's four-point sermon, four different sections we're going to be reading. And when we get to the last one, it's really the main point we're going to talk about tonight. It's important because we need to know when Jesus comes back, are we going to be taken or are we going to be left behind? Now, I want you all to think about this. The Bible actually gives two different answers to that. There's two different examples I'm going to cite to show that, that, um, that we are... There's, there's examples of the uh, second coming of believers being taken up with the angels. And then there's an example here we're going to see in a little bit in Matthew uh, where um, examples of the ones that are taken actually are, the Bible says people are thrown into hell. And those that are left behind are the ones who are going to be uh, saved. So we're gonna, that's how we're going to end today. And that's what a little handout right here. In your bulletin, so you'll be a follow along. Why don't you follow along here, Bibles? Luke chapter 17. Look what it says right here. These are warnings from Jesus. And what we're going to see here is about how to rebuke someone. Um, unfortunately, one of the things we have to do is when, when people sin, a lot of times Christians were really good at rebuking people over preferences and opinions and over what we think. But the Bible says we rebuke people over sin. Sin is when it's something we break God's standards. We break God's command. That's when we need to rebuke. But frequently we find ourselves rebuking and fighting and bickering over maybe things that aren't really sin. So look what the Bible says right here. I want you to follow in your Bibles. Luke 17, verse 1. Then he said to his disciples, so understand who we're talking to. We're talking to the disciples. This is to the saved. Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So let's, before I move on, I will explain. The little ones here, who are we talking to? We're talking to saved folks. So maybe a little one. And so I think a lot of times we might read a verse like that and think, oh, we're talking about five and six, seven-year-olds. I don't think that's necessarily who Jesus is talking about here. He's maybe talking about someone who's mature or immature, I'm sorry, in their faith. Maybe they aren't a devout believer. Maybe they don't have a deep relationship with Christ. So what we see here 
is he's talking about a fellow believer, you're causing another believer to stumble. And he's saying it would be better if you are causing someone to sin, it's better for you to take a millstone. That's how you would um, uh, grind grain with a massive stone. So obviously if it was tied around your neck or to your leg and you were thrown into the sea with it, you would obviously drown because you would be going to the bottom with it. Look what Jesus says here. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now what we see here, the main passage that Jesus is teaching, this is great tying in with relationships in this morning's theme. If your brother sins against you, verse 3, if another believer sins against you, the Bible says you rebuke him. What that means is, Rebuke is saying, hey, you know, you did this, you said this, and Scripture says this, you broke God's law. That's what a rebuke is. And you're doing this to who? Believers. The problem with rebuking an unbeliever, if you go out there on the streets, all these cars driving by our, our church right now, and you're someone who's not saved, and you go up to them and you quote a Bible verse to them and say, thus saith the Lord, you need to obey God's law. They're like, why do I need to obey God's law? I I obey the law of America. Whatever the laws of Kentucky are, I obey. But for as believers, those who align and uh, have an allegiance to Jesus Christ, we are held to a higher standard, and that's to God's law. So when we rebuke someone, the first thing we have to say, okay, is this a believer? Okay, number one, am I rebuking a sin, or is this a preference or an opinion? And then it says here, if that person repents, if that person acknowledges, you're right, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We, as believers, have to forgive them. It's not an option. We must forgive another believer if they repent. You say, why, Daniel? What if it's a, a Gary a sin or something? Matthew 6.15, Jesus told us, if, if our Father in heaven, if we refuse to forgive other people of their sins, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. So this principle here, here it is. You want to know, this is interpersonal relationship skills. You rebuke over sin, and then if they repent, you forgive them. So the, the layout is they have to be saved. You have to confront them about the sin. Make sure it's not an opinion or your preference or what you think about something. And then if they repent, you must forgive them. Forgiveness is fully restoring them to that relationship where before the sin occurred. Many times for believers, for us, one of the sins we get tripped up on, and we talked about this in Sunday school, if you're in the Bible Studies for Life Sunday School passage, if you use that Sunday School quarterly, the sin that many times people get tripped up on is the sin of a bad or a negative attitude. It's very easy for Christians to go around just spewing hate, negativity, sorriness all around and just get away with it and never be held into account when the Bible does hold us into account for our attitude. 
That is very common in Christian circles. And whenever you know someone that has a bad attitude or is very negative or down about something, and you call them out of it, from my experience in doing that, a lot of times they will say, you know, you're right, I shouldn't have said that, or that came across wrong, or I have, I have been ultra-negative and uh, disappointing about this, and they will come back. The Bible tells us if they do this over and over again, seven times a day, why seven? That doesn't mean on number eight, you don't have to do it anymore. Seven in the Bible is the number for completion, so that means for eternity. Over and over again, if a believer repents, you are expected and required to forgive them. Moving along here. Let's talk about our faith. Here's the next section. Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> the faith of a mustard seed. The Bible tells us here that we need to have an incredible faith. And usually in church, when we talk about faith, almost always, do you know it's followed without money? And faith is tied along with, well, we're going to step out on faith. We're going to do a faith budget. We're going to have faith that God will provide faith that God will take care with that and that that is certainly uh, that can certainly be the case but I think Jesus is talking about here in the instance of a healing so let's see what the Bible says here well if turn along uh, uh, Luke chapter 17 verse 5 the apostles said to the Lord increase our faith now remember what was Jesus doing Jesus here the chapter before he had raised I mean he had told the story about Lazarus he had been healing people he had uh raised folks from the dead there and um there and all of a sudden now they're saying we want what you have we want to have that type of power that type of belief jesus that you have and this is what he says in verse six if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed the lord said you can say this mulberry tree now, a mulberry tree, the reason why Jesus said that is a tree that has a big root system. They live hundreds of years. It's a, a very uh, established tree. He says, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, is Jesus telling us that we need to go look for trees and tell them to go jump into the Atlantic Ocean? No. What Jesus is trying to say here, and first of all, the mustard seed, obviously now we know there are actually smaller seeds than uh, mustard seed, but you go back 2,000 years ago, in Israel, that would have been considered the smallest seed of their day, at least that they knew of. So a mustard seed is a very small, a small seed, and Jesus is telling them, you can go and have a very small amount of faith and you can move a mulberry tree and put it back into the ocean. The principle Jesus is telling us, he's telling you and I as believers that we have access to the same God and the same, the same Jesus that can raise someone from the dead. When we pray for a healing, when we pray for God to move, when we pray for someone to be saved, Jesus is asking us, do you really believe it? Do you actually believe God can restore this marriage? God can save your wayward son or your wayward daughter? He, 
And I think what happens is Jesus realized his disciples here, they wanted an increase of their faith because when it comes down to it, they just didn't believe. They believed Jesus could do it, and they saw that Jesus could do it, but they couldn't do it. Jesus is telling us that with the power of God in our life and the power of God that we have access to through prayer and through knowing, having a relationship with Him, we can do anything. Anything doesn't necessarily mean move trees into the ocean. Anything means God can do incredible things here at Broadway Baptist Church. God can do incredible things in your life. The Lord can bless your families. God can multiply. God can grow a church. God can certainly see uh, hundreds of folks get saved and baptized here at Broadway. There's no reason why it can't. And that's what he's saying. But what happens is, when it comes down to it, the Lord is saying, you don't really believe it. I mean, think about it. Tonight is the Super Bowl. Truth is, some of you don't care at all. <laughs> like, Daniel, I'm not going to watch this. But there are people that are not at church right now because they're at home watching a football game that, truthfully, they don't even care about. They don't even like the teams. They probably didn't even watch. I mean, two years ago, they were protesting against. They said, I'd never watch another NFL game again. And they're going to watch the Super Bowl and spend five hours of literally watching commercials and indoctrination, in many ways, it's satanic indoctrination of moving, taking the believer's mind that should be focused on the Lord and repositioning it to sin and corruption. And what's happening is there are many folks, in all, and some churches even cancel church on Sunday nights to watch the Super Bowl. And Jesus is saying, here I am is saying, if you have this faith of a mustard seed, you could do so much more better and brighter, incredible things than the Super Bowl. How small is the Super Bowl? How dinky is the Super Bowl in perspective to God? That's what the Lord is saying to us tonight. Jesus is looking at us and saying, do you really believe I can do it? And I think for, for some of us, you say, okay, Daniel, I believe, now what do I do? S- to start with, we say, God, um, increase my faith. Look at, the, well, look at the question the disciples are asking. They just go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me have this type of faith. What do I do to do it? So, all right, so here's how he's going to answer the question. So here's, here's the question of how to get this type of faith that we're going to be able to exceed the Super Bowl and exceed the mulberry tree. Which of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from a field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to get, to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you can eat and drink. So what Jesus is saying is, if you have a servant, you have somebody who works for you, and they come in after keeping the sheep or working 8 to 5, they walk in, and you're the owner, you pay all the bills, you're in charge of the folks, um, you would say, you know, it's dinner time now. 
why don't you prepare me a meal since you work for me? And yes, you worked all day in the field. Now you're going to work here all day here at the house. So, um, and then after you do, you serve me, then you get to eat. What Jesus is saying in that illustration there, he's saying that's very common. That's what you would expect for a servant during that time. So then look what happens, verse 9. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? I mean, the guy worked for him. He, you're doing what you do, you... do you deserve a prize because you did what I hired you to do? That's the question Jesus is asking. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants, we've only done our duty. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying, because this doesn't, you read this, go, how does this make any sense? Jesus is telling us, we as believers, Christ has saved us. We aren't entitled to salvation. We're actually just servants of who? Of God. So he expects us to do what he has commanded us to do. And one of his commands is that we believe the Lord. Remember Abraham. God called him. And Abraham obeyed and left his family of Ur of the Chaldeans and traveled to Mesopotamia, current day Israel, and brought his family there. And God looked at Abraham and he looked at that. This man believed me. And the Bible says that God credited Abraham because of his belief, and made him righteous. His belief and his obedience is what made him righteous. What Jesus is trying to tell us is God is out there looking for folks. He's saying, I've already given you the commands. You already know what's expected of you, Broadway Baptist Church. I'm looking for people tonight who instead aren't consumed with the Super Bowl, who are consumed about obeying the commands of the Lord. The commands of the Lord are you worship the Lord. He goes first. He's before Super Bowl. He, you, not only that, you live a life based that's on God's holiness and expectation. We have, a, we have a great commission lifestyle that we go out. When we meet people this upcoming week, We instead of talking about football and whatever else, basketball, we talk to them about the Lord. That's what he's looking for. Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, guys, you're not going to get a special treat just because you're a disciple. You're a servant. God owns you. You're just like a slave who comes in from work in the field. You're going to prepare the master a meal. And then after all that's done, then you get to eat. Because God owns you. This is a mindset change for us. This is something we have to say, God, I'm doing my duty. Listen. Broadway Baptist Church will not grow by people being absent. Broadway Baptist Church will not grow by people not coming to church. Broadway Baptist Church will not grow and folks will not get saved by people not praying. You, you, if we're a church that doesn't show up, if we're a church that people do not pray, if we're a church that people just come at their convenience whenever they want to show up if there's nothing better to do, I mean, people <clears throat> nowadays go on vacation every 10 weeks. So if there's not a vacation to attend, 
And it's just like at the last, if there's no family to tend to, there's nothing else to, to hang out with. At the last resort, then, and only then, I guess this Sunday, since there's a lot going on, I guess I'll go to church. No work, no family events, no other commitments, no other priorities. Do y'all see this backwards? If that is your attitude towards the Lord and towards serving Him and towards, you know, I'll just come when I can, you will have, you will be like the disciples going up to Jesus saying, Jesus, increase our faith. What they're asking for is they're saying, Jesus, I want more. I want you, Lord. And Jesus saying, you know, I've already given you me. I've told you this stuff over and over and over again. You've got the entire Old Testament. The first commandment is worship the Lord first and foremost. Listen, you live a God-centered life. If Christ is first in your life, you are going to have a prayer life. You're going to be a, someone who's going around witnessing. You're going to show up at church looking for the folks that you invited. You're not even going to know there is a Super Bowl being played tonight. Because you live for the Lord. That's the type of faith that Jesus is trying to say. The devil has fooled us and dubbed us in thinking church is just, it's just another weekend recreational activity. And Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, man, this is your duty. This is your life. If you are, when you signed up, when you walk an aisle and give your heart to Jesus, do you know you just sold your soul to God? forever eternal security you're saved you signed up to become a disciple and jesus is looking for people says okay you're going to be a follower well you're not going to grow with your how many absence you have you should never be absent you should be completely devout in your prayer life Things do not grow. Your faith will not increase by skipping church, not reading the Bible, and having no prayer life. Church, no church will grow doing that. The problem with American Christianity, churches are dead all around our world because the Christians are just, they're just busy. They've got other priorities. They, they, they all say they love the Lord, but they're at the Super Bowl. They're on vacation. They're at a trip. They're with their family. They're gardening. They're eating across the street. I mean, there's all, I mean, these are all good things. But what's the problem with it? Jesus saying, guys, if you want to be a believer, you're going to do your duty. And, and Jesus, the powerful, what I love about this passage, don't miss this for all Baptist Church. Jesus never told these guys how to get an increased faith. He says, you want to increase faith? You want to move that mulberry tree and throw it in the sea well you already know what to do aren't you a servant it's like doesn't god own you don't you profess to be a follower well get to work and start following the lord this is discipleship right here he's trying to explain to them there's nothing you do to increase your the only thing you do is you realize god you're first you're above any and everyone else in my life this is what it looks like having a God-centered life. It's when you raise your hand and say, Lord, I have a duty. The word duty is used in verse 10. I have a duty, and my duty is to Jesus first. First and foremost, he comes before anyone. 
Moving along right here. Look at this Samaritan here. Ten men healed. Chapter, verse, uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 11. Follow along your Bible. While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now remember, why are these men standing in the middle of nowhere um, calling out in a little, they're a little isolated circle? And this is because of Leviticus chapter 14. You don't need to turn there, I'll explain it to you. If you had a skin disease, such as leprosy in the Bible, you were considered unclean. So the way you got quarantined, you know, first quarantine actually came from the Lord. You had to go from Leviticus chapter 14 over there in one of the refuge cities in Samaria that nobody wants to go to, and you go live in a little leper colony. As a leper colony, you stay over there, and it's you and your, your skin disease friends, and it's just people with leprosy. Remember what leprosy is. Leprosy is a, a sad way to die. Your, your, your hands, your uh, fingers, your feet shrivel up. I mean, it's just pitiful. You can, don't do it, but if you don't believe me, you can go on Google and type in the word leprosy and click on the images, and you will see what the, uh, a leper looks like. But be prepared when you look at those pictures. I mean, it's, it's, it's gruesome. Well, in the Bible, if you were a leper, if you had this skin disease, you had to be quarantined from other folks. You were there in a certain little area, and that's what Jesus is passing through. So all of a sudden, these ten men with these, um, these lepers are calling out to him. They Jesus, you know, uh, have mercy on us. We need to be healed, is what they're saying. Verse 14, and then he saw and he told them, go and show yourselves to the priest. The reason why he said that is because of Leviticus chapter 14. In order for them to be made unclean, cure, the priests had to look at them, all things the, uh, the religious leaders had to look at them and declare, well, it looks like these people are leper-free. So they're, they're now safe to be around. So that's what happened there. So they're going to see the priest. They're following the Old Testament laws. And while they were going, they were cleansed. So lo and behold, they got healed. Jesus healed them. But one of them, now look at this, one of them, Seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down his feet and thanking him, and he was a Samaritan. So remember, a Samaritan is someone who is not 100% Jewish, and they, were, they would have been uh, Assyria attacked the northern kingdom. Back, that's how the top uh, you know, Israel split after Solomon. You had the northern kingdom and the, Solomon, uh, the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. And then they started inter, um, having relations with the Israelites. And you have this new people group. They were half Jew, half basically Assyrians. And they were called Samaritans there in Samaria. That, and um, the, um, what happened, though, was they found themselves, um, this one man, he came back and he thanked the Lord. And so look what the Lord says here. Jesus said to him in verse 17, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine at? Yeah, it's interesting. Jesus, um, Jesus noticed the missing people. Jesus notices folks when they're not there. 
Jesus knows the folks who are at the Super Bowl and who are not church. Jesus notices the absenteeism. Where the other nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? I mean, that was an insult right there. He's saying, here's the Samaritan. He's the only one here giving glory to God. Now look what Jesus says. Here's the main point of the story. And he told them, this is Jesus speaking in verse 19, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. This man not only received a physical healing, as the other uh, nine did, but he also received a spiritual healing. By him coming back and thanking Jesus, coming back and says, you know what, after I showed myself to the priest, I came back to Jesus and I thanked him. This one Samaritan, not only was he healed, he was also saved. Now what's interesting about this story here is when did this happen on the hills of? This happened on the hills of the question of back, going back to verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They wanted to have a great faith. Who was the example of the person with the great faith? It was the outcast leper, Samaritan, who re received a healing, yet also received salvation. The most least likely person, because he's the one who came back to Jesus and thanked Jesus. Because Jesus is trying to say, here is someone that has a God-centered life. He recognized that it was the Lord who healed him. He recognized it was the Lord who answered this prayer. It was the Lord who blessed him. And that's the type of faith the Lord is looking at for us. It's easy once you get your pick up your healing, once you get your blessing, once you get what you want from the Lord, bam, on to the next thing. I guarantee you the other nine, they went to their family. The other nine also went to hell. They got healed. You can get healed by Jesus and still go to hell. Just because he physically heals someone doesn't mean you're saved. The Samaritan was healed and saved. Last thing right here. Here it is, main point. Verse 20, the coming of the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus' second coming is going to look like. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. Meaning, Jesus is saying, I'm right here with you. The kingdom of God ain't going to float down out of heaven. The kingdom of God's already here. The Holy Spirit's here on earth. He's working. He's standing here speaking words to you. He's speaking to you tonight. Then he told his disciples, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, See there or see here? Don't follow or run after them. For the lightning flashes from the horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus just said here, we shouldn't be chasing after signs. We shouldn't be looking for a blood moon to say, okay, is this going to be the time when Jesus is going to return? Is the Dome of the Rock now destroyed? Now, so I know, looking at my watch, we're right on schedule, Lord. Jesus says you shouldn't be doing that because no one's going to know that. Only the Lord knows that. Just as it was, now here's the examples of how it's going to be when Jesus comes back. He's giving two examples here. The days of Noah and the days of Lot. Look here. 
just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, and buying, selling, planning, and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, look at this, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That's the only time when Jesus said that about Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What happened there? <clears throat> Days of Noah. Noah built a big boat. It had never rained before. And the people mocked Noah. He's loading up his animals, and the, he's, he's claiming the, the world's going to flood. And I'm sure the people are thinking, this crazy old man, poor Noah, bless his heart. And the people, the Bible says they were eating and drinking and just going about their day, not even thinking about what was about to happen. The days of Lot. Why was Sodom destroyed? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. That's where we get the word of sodomy. That's why homosexuality is a sin. It comes right there in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. <clears throat> God sent an angel to rescue Lot and his family, and it says the men of the city were trying to have sexual relations with the angels, meaning male-to-male sex is what we were talking about. That's what sodomy is. And then, remember, if you turn back in your Bibles, you need to do it tonight, God struck them with blindness, and they escaped. And then fire and sulfur started raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in the southern Dead Sea. If you look at your map, we don't know where these exact cities are because they're gone. The Lord destroyed them. But they're, they're near the Dead Sea. And what happened is Lot's wife, the angel said, whatever you do while you escape, do not turn around and look back. And this is why Jesus said this in verse 32. Remembers Lot's wife? She apparently looked back, and immediately, what happened? She became a pillar of salt. Just like that, she died. Gone. She disobeyed the Lord. God told her not to look back. You don't need to watch me destroy these cities. And she did. So why would Jesus say, remember Lot's wife? Lot's wife. Even though she was escaping Sodom, even though Lot took his wife away, she really didn't want to leave. Even though she was <coughs> running from sin, she, she didn't, it was still there with her. And I think this is, she could not obey the Lord. And I think for us, we have to remember, even if, even while we're trying to do God's will, we're trying to live, if we're not careful, there will always be this temptation to look back. Remember the good old days? Remember high school and college and the 20s and 30s back when I was a younger man? And man, those were just great times. Jesus warns us about that. Because the good old days, in many cases, were filled with sin. Sodom was a place of immorality. 
There was no reason to look at Sodom. Sodom should be gone from the memory of Lot and his family. That was the place of sin. If you're going to be saved and delivered by the Lord, you should not be reminiscing on old times, maybe before you were saved, or maybe an inappropriate relationship, or a sinful decision you made. God is saying, I've saved you from that. And you should not be thinking and dwelling on your past. That's why he's saying, remember Lot's wife. She paid a call. She paid a price for turning back and reminiscing on what would it be like. I want to see what's really happening there at Sodom. What about my friends? Are they dying? Is this for real? Do I even believe what's happening? I mean, you have to think. Understand what happened. These angels came in and grabbed Lot and his family and his, his daughters. And the, the, his daughters were engaged, but they made fun. They, they joked about it and said, what, we're not leaving? Crazy Lot, who do you think you are? This is Sodom. Just grab a beer. We're going to have a good time. Or have, grab a bourbon here in central Kentucky and have a good time about it. Relax. Turn the game on. Chill out. And while all these people, they're running out. Understand this. Everybody's just standing around the city. And there goes these people running out thinking, what, do they know something we don't know? All right, don't look back. Whatever you do, God's going to destroy the city. Lot's wife didn't believe. She's probably thinking, this is crazy. What on earth are we doing? Why do I have to go run out in the wilderness? These wacko people? And she's dead. And she's lost. And Jesus told us to remember her because that's what it's going to be like when he returns. There will be people who maybe they were in the family. Lot's wife was not saved. She was married to a saved man. Lot was saved. He was delivered. But his wife wasn't. She was right there related to Abraham, the greatest man of faith. She witnessed and heard all the great stories of what God had done. But she did not believe. And Jesus says, if you're not careful, you could be like her as well. Verse 30, 32 here. Keep going in here. Verse 33. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, look at this. Two will be in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. This is why from this morning's sermon, it's so important that you marry somebody who's also saved. You need to be equally yoked. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Verse 35, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. And then the, the disciples ask, well, where, Lord? Where are these folks going? And so we have to ask, okay, one's going to be taken, one's left. Two people are in bed together, one's taken, one's left. So is the one taken saved or is the one left saved? Like, what's going on here? And they ask the question. They want to know, where are they going? Like, what's going on here? And he says to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, I want to explain what that means. So <laughs> Jesus gives these vague answers. If you're driving down the highway and there's a dead deer, there's birds circling around it, there's hawks, there's vultures, there's crows, they're eating the carcass. Jesus is saying, you will know where folks go based just like you know where a carcass is and the vultures are circling. So this answers the question for us, and here's what we're going to end on. Turn in your Bible, 
over here. <clears throat> and you, a little insert. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. This is an example of believers being taken. Because the Bible says, he's going to give us two different examples here in Scripture. Believers being taken and also believers being left behind. Here's the example of believers being taken. So Jesus is saying here, when he comes back, it's going to be obvious. Just like a carcass is dead on the side of the road and you know there's birds circling around eating it. It'll be very obvious where they're going. Verse 15, look what it says here. For we say this to you, I'm in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming, look at this, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are still left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is an example of the second coming of Jesus taking the people with him. Meaning, those that are left behind, those that are still there, they will be taken after the dead in Christ rise first. Then, the archangel with the trumpet, he will take those who are believers in Jesus Christ. So they say there, so what will happen at the second coming? Those folks, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, will be taken. Now, so what about left behind? Jesus also told us a story about this. Flip over in your Bibles, last scripture we're going to look at tonight. We'll have our invitation. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. Jesus told us another story here about the wheat in the weeds, or in your King James Bible, the wheat and the tares. Bailey Smith, one of the gentlemen who I, uh, one of our great Southern Baptist evangelists who actually just passed away a week ago. I don't know if you knew that, Brother Hurd. He went to be with the Lord. Brother Bailey Smith did. Uh, he, he preached here in Lexington not, uh, decades ago, but at one point. He had a very famous sermon here based on this, the wheat and the tares, it was called. And he talked about how whether you know you are a, a weed, that's what a tear is, or you're the wheat, meaning you're either lost or you're saved. And what's powerful about this is the Bible tells us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate the story here before we, so we don't have to read it all, but you want to turn to Matthew 13, 40. Jesus told this illustration, and then it's one of the few parables he actually explained. If you look back in your Bible, it actually says, uh, it starts in verse 24. It's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. But then you skip down to verse 36, and he ex interprets his own parable because the disciples didn't understand. They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And what he says, he says, you have to be careful because it's like a farmer. He goes out and he sows the seed, and he puts good, good crops down, and they're growing up. And then all of a sudden, one day, the farmer looks out, and there's some weeds all around. You think, well, who, what happened here? And, and Jesus says, an enemy came over here and put a bunch of weeds also in the field. And the question was, was should we pull up the weeds and leave the wheat there? And the owner, the owner of the field is God saying, no, we don't want to pull up the weeds because if we pull up the weeds, we might accidentally pull up some wheat too. So we're going to let the wheat and the weeds grow together. So that means, this is important, 
all around us here, right here in Lexington, there's wheat, meaning the wheat are saved folks. And who are the weeds? The weeds are lost folks. They're growing together. They're all around us. God's allowing, there's wheat and weeds to be surrounded all around us. So then, here's the harvest. So here's what will happen here. Here's what we're going to pick up in your Bibles. Matthew 13, verse 40. Look what happens here. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered, or actually, look at verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So that Jesus is interpreting his own Bible verse. The end of the age is going to be the angels when they come. The, 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 who sowed the enemy was the devil. He came and sowed all this, these weeds here. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Look at this. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who call sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Jesus told us at the end of the age when he comes back, the angels will be sent out and they'll gather up the lost, the weeds, people who rejected Jesus. And he'll pick those folks up. And what will he do? It says this is one of the few places in the Bible. It says they will be thrown into hell. Listen, no one goes to hell walking. No one goes to hell thinking, well, I guess I need to take the elevator down there or I'm going to just go ahead and hop on the subway and go or take a taxi. People are thrown into the lake of fire. People are thrown into the place of the blazing furnace and it's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know why it says there will be gnashing of teeth? God's going to allow people to have teeth in hell because they're going to be angry at themselves. You know why they're going to be angry at themselves? Because they failed to receive and respond to Jesus. They put other priorities, the priorities of the world, the priorities of the weeds in front of them instead of the Lord. And Jesus is saying here, those who are actually left are the saved. So, tying all this together, the second coming of Jesus, we know, based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17, we're going to be taken Based on Matthew chapter 13, verse 40 through 42, we're going to be left. Now, how do we reconcile this? I believe it's the second coming. Both will happen. That we will be taken into glory with heaven, with Jesus. And he illustrates that there in 1 Thessalonians. Yet not only that, there will also be those who are lost. They will be thrown into this furnace. So that's how we reconcile this here in the Bible. So the question for us, when the second coming comes, tying all this back together, back to Luke chapter 17, verse 36, when we look there at that scripture verse, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other will be left. The saved person is going to heaven, and the lost person is going into the furnace. Now how exactly that will happen, we don't know. And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He's just saying, you're going to have two people who are married. You're going to have two employees who are working together. The wheat and the weeds grow together. Now, how tying this together for us and ending on this, our responsibility. And even the little video we showed there from Kevin Easel, we have a lost nation. 
I was reading something from this morning from the North American Mission Board. I get all their little updates and everything. Do you know 96% of South Florida doesn't even go to church? Unchurched, lost. 4% of South Florida is saved. I mean, it's pitiful. Our country is dying for the gospel. There is a huge need. You don't have to go across the world to find lost folks. America is a mission field. Every language is spoken here. Every nationality is represented. Whatever you want, you can find right here in the USA. And for us as believers, this should motivate and drive us to missions. We are the wheat, but there are tares and there are weeds all around us. And unless we tell them about the Lord, they are lost and they're going to this fiery furnace Jesus here is talking about. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I pray for our invitation tonight. If there's anyone here that needs to make a decision, I pray tonight they will respond to the gospel. I thank you for what you're doing. We pray for our Awanas that's meeting downstairs. We pray for the youth group that's meeting down there with Ray. Lord, we just pray for uh, the blessings you have for Broadway. I pray for the folks that, Lord, we will have our priorities. If we want to increase our faith, Lord, we will center it on you and not something like a Super Bowl. Lord, thank you for saving us, and I pray we respond boldly to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray here, our invitation. Amen.